Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 21. This is part 2. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, we continue with chapter 21. It's been uh, brilliant the, the last um, time we spoke, all the things that Spensky's uh, brought into this chapter. And uh, so I'm going to take up where we left off and just continue um, on this part. So thanks for joining us. So we have quite a few paragraphs here, which I think quite uh I, I don't want to skip over anything because i feel that there's a lot in them well what he's doing is in this next uh couple of paragraphs and so and i i'll be honest with you i've underlined every bloody line um because yeah, so he's giving he, he's giving us loads of of ways that this experience has been related in texts by, by other people People who've mm. tried to use language to explain what it's like. He's given you loads and loads of them here. So I think it's worth unpacking. I think it's worth going into. Yeah. So somebody that's had the experience then. Somebody that's had the experience. He says, the visible world began to seem to him fantastic and unreal. Everything all about him was disappearing. He's all about now the 3D world. is disappearing, yes. vanishing like smoke leaving a dreadful feeling of illusion. Oh my God, everything that I thought was real was an illusion. Bloody, can you imagine? And then you'll feel isolated. You have to have isolation first. In everything, he felt the abyss of infinity and everything was plunging into the abyss. And that leaves you with nothing to replace, does it? It's like you're not That's left right. with any, you're not, it's not replacing it. It's you're left with. You're left with nothing. This sense of the infinite is the first and most terrible trial before initiation. Nothing exists. So understand that this is the first step on the path, not the not the, the goal. It's the first path. That terror is something that you have to overcome. Everybody has to overcome it. In magic, people will talk about you have to die before... You can have the experience. You, you have to die. This is the death they're talking about. It's the death of the ego. Maybe other things, but certainly the death of that ego. The ego that understands this 3D world as all that there is, or tries to map the logic of the 3D world to everything else that they experience beyond the 3D world. And because they're faced with absurdities then, it's terrifying. They see everything falling apart between them. You have to do that before you can actually take this further and control the experience. Because controlling the experience is what this is about. Evolving into the new person, the new human. And when Espensky talks about this, uh, and he has already mentioned ceremony, rites, initiation, etc., uh, further up on the page, do you think he's implying that to get here, you are in some sort of magical ceremony or whatever well somebody it would be best no you can do this on your own and some people have spontaneous experiences there's loads of it at the moment the the fashionable term is 
awakening. And you'll hear of people that have had spontaneous awakenings. Somebody famous in the spiritual world, you know, in the world of development, Eckhart Tolle, reads the preface to his book, The Power of Now, and he'll describe his own awakening experience where he has this experience of the, the void and the abyss, and he comes out of it okay. Some people don't. Quite simple. It's as simple as that. So it can be spontaneous. You can choose to work work for it yourself. How are you going to do that? Um, you'll probably read loads and loads and loads and loads of books and talk to other people who, who do meditation, you know, meditation on their own and so on to try to experience Sartori or Nirvana for some people. Some, some Ascensionistas want the disappearance from this world altogether and the achievement of Nirvana. But whichever, whatever, it is possible. Um, but the safest way is to, is to actually find a group of people who have had the experience, who know how to train you to have it, and will be there with you as you have the experience to keep you safe, or as safe as it's possible to be. And they'll certainly know how to treat you if you're having a bad experience of it. It's a bit like um, if you were going to take LSD, um, anybody from the 1960s or 70s would tell you the safest thing to do is not do it on your own, but, but do this in a group and have somebody that's not taking it, but knows what the experience is like to be the safe person, the responsible adult. People didn't always do that, you know, but anybody will tell you, you shouldn't be doing this alone. You know, you do it with a group of people who've been there before. Certainly for the first time you do it or the first couple of times you do it. It's no different. Safe, that, that kind of safety comes with following a well-trodden path in the company of people who've trodden it often and understand it thoroughly. And that's what, that's what groups are for. That's what rites of initiation are for and so on. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm sure there are those that are real and those that are not real. And uh, it's about finding the one that's well, big, I what, suppose. I've got to tell you, ones that you find on the internet are not going to be. Sim simple as that. That's it's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> yes, you. Yes, the internet will weed out those. Um, so Spensky goes on to say, a little miserable soul feels itself suspended in an infinite void. The mystical literature of all peoples abounds in references to this sensation of darkness and emptiness. Okay, I'm just putting my hand up to step in here because your version is missing a line. Oh, well, please tell us what was said. Okay, mine says, mine says it thus. A little miserable soul feels itself suspended in an infinite void. Then even this void disappears. And he's got an explanation, exclamation mark after disappears. Bam! It does, because it does. It really, really does. It's like that. Nothing exists. There is only infinity, a constant and continuous division and dissolution of everything. It's like there's motion, but no motion. It's incredible. It's, in, it's indescribable. And then he comes back onto where you go. The mystical literature of all peoples abounds in references to this sensation of darkness and emptiness. For the best one, get books on Enochian magic. Uh, if you can get books of the stages of Enochian magic, you will have that described. The best I've ever seen it done. Okay. And then he does come on to the ancient Egyptians. And he, sh 
he's showing you here that these old myth stories that, that are denigrated by modern science, the new cult of religion, these stories were there to tell us how this is. He says, and the ancient Egyptians had the, there exists in a story of the Orpheus myth in which it is described as a thrice unknown darkness in contemplation of which all knowledge is resolved into ignorance. Wow. That is big, isn't it? Mm. A thrice unknown. In other words, it's multiple steps. You can't know it. And, and by the way, the power of three is is very big. It, it's it's well known in all aspects of mysticism and magic. So thrice unknown um, shows how powerful that is. Now that little phrase there, the thrice unknown darkness in contemplation of which all knowledge is resolved into ignorance, comes from a book called The Ancient Wisdom by Annie Besant, and you know she she is a theosophist, a great one of the great theosophist interpreters. And so that book, The Ancient Wisdom, if you want to get it, maybe worth, worth a look. So man must have felt horror transcending all limits as he approached the world of causes with the knowledge of the world of phenomena only. His instrument of logic, logic having now proved useless because all the new eluded him. In other words, you can't even map the experience back to this world because nothing fits, and you're standing there on your own in the dark. Well, floating there, or, or drifting there, or being there, but, that, but it's, it's lonely, and you feel tiny, insignificant, because you haven't yet realised that you are the drop of water that this hole is a part of. So it's before the ocean pours into the drop? Is it that feeling of being a drop yep. as opposed to... Yeah, you're, you're seeing yourself as the drop instead of understanding that the whole ocean is in you and in the same way that you're in the whole ocean. It's when you stop seeing yourself as the drop that then you, the, your transformation can begin. But he says, in the new as yet, as yet, he sensed chaos only. The old had disappeared, gone away and become unreal. Horror and regret for the loss of the old mingled with horror of the new, unknown and, in italics, terrible by its infinitude. You see, we can mentally talk of infinity and we can put that silly little sideways eight symbol, it's not silly, but that symbol of the sideways eight, you know, as a symbol of infinity and we can intellectually acknowledge it. But when you experience it, it's terrifying. There are phrases like the words over the, the uh, over certain Greek temples, you know, saying this place is terrible, you know, and things like that, you know. Um, is this correct? It's terrible because you have no anchor. You you. Yeah, uh, that's right. No anchor. That's yeah. That would be terrifying. We, we anchor ourselves daily to this world. Having looked into a new world for an instant. The soul is attracted by the life it left behind. The world which it saw only for an instant seems but a dream, a vision, the creation of imagination. But the familiar old world, too, is never there after the same. It is too narrow. In it there is not sufficient room. So you come back feeling like that. You're attracted back, but that's what you feel when you do get back. And is this where uh, some people can't cope with? That that's right and go go insane well what we call insane 
I, yes. I believe that they're having an experience of reality. And other cultures around the world do treat them that way. They treat them as very special people to be revered within a tribe. Do you think that they are still experiencing part of the new in a in the Yes, and the problem setting? is that they're, they're trying constantly to intellectualise in 3D experience and language and thought and philosophy an experience which they can't map to. You can't map that 3D logic onto the experience they've had, and yet they're constantly trying to do that. So nothing, nothing seems real. And that would be very, very lonely because everyone would look at you like you had lost your marbles, which... Mm. Well, that's how we, we call it. Yeah. So Spensky then says, the awakening consciousness can no longer live the free life of the beast. Already it knows something different. It hears some voices, even though the body holds it. Yep. And he's got the body in italics. And I, yep. I'm presuming he's saying that you come back with something, even though you're in the body, you have changed. Yeah, that's right. Your, your spirit is still held by the body, but you know that you are a spiritual being with with an experience of an illusory body so you can still you can still you can still do things in the 3d world the way that you could but you have this knowledge that the that you are actually something different that this the body is just an illusion to allow you to have an it's no different than i've said it before than wearing a spacesuit to go into space the body is like a spacesuit so that you can have an experience of an, a particular environment i.e the 3d world and Spensky's not making this stuff up. He's he, he's just writing what uh, I'm presuming many um, millions, absolutely yeah. you, you, countless texts still exist. Yeah, I mean, I would suggest anybody that's interested um, look, and it's it's quite available. It's it's available in the modern world. It's in publication, and it's the, the collected works of Hermes Trismegistus, who's an alchemist an ancient alchemist, and read those. And we have snippets translated from the Greek. You can find it and see how how this experience is described there and the methods for having the experience safely and so on. But yeah, Hermes Trismegistus, that's thrice magical, thrice wondrous, three times wondrous, Trismegistus, or three times great even. Because he was, he was, he was a great alchemist, a great ancient alchemist. If he actually existed at all, it could be that we have a collection of works um, that have gone under the name Hermes Trismegistus. But nevertheless, rather like um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are probably collected, collected story parts, and that there wasn't just a single Homer that did the whole thing. And certainly, it wouldn't have been written down by Homer because it was an oral tradition. But nevertheless, moving on. Yeah, that's yeah, it's really interesting. Spensky talks then about a man on the threshold of an, mm. of new world experiences, literally the same things. He should have put a comma after world, by the way, because it, otherwise it doesn't make sense if you read it. Like straight yeah, because you're saying new world experiences, not I new know. world experiences, yeah. literally. Yeah, so a man thing. on the threshold of a new world experiences literally the same thing, is what, is what he's actually saying. Yeah, yeah. He has heard celestial harmonies, and the wearisome songs of earth touch him no longer, nor do they move him. 
Okay, right. I told you earlier on that he is going to give you references to every culture's experience of this that he can think of. So these celestial harmonies come up in every devoted saint's, saint's writings about their experience of the numinous of heaven and the angel, the choir of angels and the, the celestial harmony. It, it's there all the time and it's there in millions of cultures. It's there in the Hindu culture. If you read the the uh, work by Sri Yukteswar, who was the, the guru who mentored um, Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda, who brought um, Hindu guruism and yoga to the West in the 1920s. You know, so if you read Sri Yukteswar, he talks about the celestial spheres and the, and the harmonies of the spheres and the sounds and these, these celestial harmonies. Um, Another reason that we find the use of singing bowls to create these celestial harmonies with constant sound. This, these are a constant in cultures. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna point these things out every time we, we come across these little, little phrases that would otherwise go unnoticed. Yeah, and that's great because you can't just skip over anything really in this chapter. It's no, this, this chapter is really like bit for bit. He's concise and he's saying a lot. He's saying a lot more than this chapter you'd think was in a chapter, you know. Yeah, yeah. But but I, I will come back to the thing is that some of these things that he says, he's speaking to two audiences here, and one of those audiences is going to get the symbolic references so that they know that they're listening to somebody that's one of them that's had the experience. Yes, because Ospensky obviously has had this experience. Yes, he has. No question about it whatsoever. The, cir the circles th that he moves in and the things that he's describing and the way that he describes them, is it's impossible for him not to. Mm, mm. So what else does he use? What else does he use? Celestial harmonies, They've he's talked about, in, of the inaccessible, of the unknown. He's experienced the sensational, sensation of an unusual... And in capitals, expansion of consciousness, where everything was clear to him for a moment. And he cannot reconcile himself to the sluggish, earthly work of the brain. That's really descriptive, Like I said, you, la you literally cannot. You understand that the brain is a miserably poor thing. Ment the mental work that we do down here in the 3D world, that, that science, we'll come back to science, makes such a big deal of, ooh, look at how clever we are, we can use our brains. Well, I'm saying that your brain is pitiful. If you were a psychologist, you'd look at the scientist and say, I don't know what it is that you're doing, but let me tell you, your conscious mind can only hold and process seven plus or minus two pieces of information at any given time. So, Aspinsky moves on to talk about theosophical literature and books of occultism. No, he goes on. He says something else before. He talks about. Um, oh yes, the colours. I've missed those. Let's let's go back to the colours. Colours and these colours, these new colours are interesting because um, a a it happens everywhere. Everybody talks about it. And something really interesting. You could read a. I mean, there's a a writer. He's he's rather miserably categorised as a horror writer. H. P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Writing at the same time as Uspensky, pretty much, by the way. Um, one of the stories that he wrote, and many of his stories are actually describing these mythical worlds. 
um, you know, this mythical experience, this mysterious experience. Um, there's a, there's one called Polaris. There's another. Um, well, actually, the the one that I really people should look at is something called the Color Out of Space, and he literally is describing somebody that stumbles in the wild upon something mysterious that's fallen there, and the colors are not colors of the spectrum as we know it, and they're indescribable. But he's, you will not tell me that Lovecraft wasn't aware of this experience if he hadn't had it himself. These things turn up everywhere. I don't want us to miss anything because it's the commonality of the experience in different cultures around the world that, that by the mm. way, science would tell us could, they couldn't have had any contact with each other. Science will tell us that. And that's what Spensky yeah. is saying here, that uh, uh, with this, well, he's saying entering into the astral world and astral being in inverted commas, man begins to see new colours, colours of which are not on the solar spectrum, just as you've said. Mm. In this symbolism of new colours of the astral sphere, there are new emotions. He then says that this is, this is that feeling of expansion of consciousness, that sea pouring into the drop concept, that, that's the new emotions. Yeah, sure is. Well, it's, I, like, I like how he's using terms like astral sphere. He hasn't used that before. He's, no, he has he's, he, he's now using terms that will speak to a lot of people and that other people will just gloss over. That's, this is why I'm bringing it back. He is now, this chapter is telling, is telling a story to somebody outside of the normal reader. It, it's, it's telling you, you're on the right track. If you've seen any of these terms in the literature that you're reading for your personal self-growth, then you're on the right track. These are signs. These are like the pebbles left behind by Hansel and Gretel so that they can find mm. their way out of the wood. These are signs along the way. All of these little terminologies that he uses are speaking to certain publics. It's great. Yeah. He's going to come on to a next one now. The strange bliss, the heavenly light, the new sensations experienced by poets. Not every poet by the way. But there are some amazing pieces of poetry. Yeah, that, there are. That uh, they speak to an emotion, don't they? That's mm. the thing. They speak to an emotion. Yeah, I think so. And then this this idea of ecstasy, which even psychology, you know, the science of psychology does describe and understands being something that, although they're using a word for it, they're not actually describing it. They know it's the best they can do. Yeah, and he's saying, he's 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 giving us some clues there. He's saying that uh, ecstasy with entirely unusual sensations, inaccessible and unknown to man in the life of every day. So yeah, even psychologists understand, and they've given this term ecstasy, a word that already existed to describe it. But even psychologists know that they're using a word in language to describe something that language has no words for, which is great. Yeah. The sen and he then talks about this sensation of light and unlimited joy being experienced with the expansion of consciousness and uh, refers to um, uh, a Hindu philosophy, the, uh, the unfoldment of the mystical lotus. The thousand-petaled lotus that is constantly unfolding you can see fractal videos on youtube of it and it's quite mesmerizing 
to watch. Oh, so it's a real thing? No, it's not a real thing. Uh, that's the whole point. Oh, okay. how, yes, I was going to say. How, yeah, could, was... how could the lotus flower be infinitely unfolding, the petals unfolding? But but in fractal geometry, you can do it. So people have made fractal videos of what, what appears uh... to be... Just imagine it's, a, it's doing it on a loop, but the loop is so seamless that it looks as though it's happening constantly. Oh, I see. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look at, to be fair. Yeah, I, it turns up on my Facebook every now and again. Somebody will, will post one in there. <laughs> well, I'm going to have a look for that. Um, and it says, at the moment of the sensation of infinity, and it yields also the sensation of darkness and of unlimited horror. Yeah. So this, is, this has been mentioned before, this totally dark, alone, horrifying experience. But that... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like this is all related to this concept of actually understanding infinity, uh, yeah. not from an intellectual, but from a real experiencing infinity, which would be terrifying. Well, it would when you consider that you're going to it with the idea that you are separate and an individual and not part of a whole. In other words, you're bringing 3D logic into the experience. So you're going to feel very small. And very alone because it's infinitely dark as well so you're not aware of anything else around you just infinity itself no light no nothing at that point horrifying well this is the abyss this is Karanzan yeah you have to cross the abyss in other words you have to you have to overcome Karanzan that demon of horror now you could argue and you could debate all you like oh it's a real thing the demons a real thing and this that and the other or you can just say it is this sensation i don't really care i'm not having the debate i'm not interested but you do have to overcome it this is this is what's meant by crossing the abyss because once you've crossed it you actually have this fantastic realization that this is the reality this this wholeness this oneness how you can be separate and one at the same time in other words the absurdity of the logic you can have an individual um expression of consciousness or be an individual expression of consciousness but still part of this giant infinite consciousness at the same time in other words a equals not a is the best way of describing it yeah which he's going to come to in a bit but you know notice that when he's talked about this sensation of darkness and of unlimited horror he says what does this mean he's just thrown that phrase in there I mean, I don't know from a literary point of view. Is it in yours? Does he say, yes, it what is. does this mean? What does this mean? And I was going, tell me more. Yeah, but he doesn't tell you what it means. He asks you another question. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop beating around the bush. What does this mean? We'll explain it because people are listening and probably don't have a book in front of them. Um, he's put that on a line all on its own. You'll notice that all the other questions that come after it, how, how shall we reconcile, blah, 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 do they occur simultaneously? They're all together in a paragraph. He's stuck this on its own. What does this mean? So what does that mean that he's done that? Quite simple. Again, I keep mentioning he's talking to two audiences, at least two. One of them, he's telling them, I am an initiate. And that, stuck out there, is one of those phrases that tells people, look, I'm writing all this stuff, but I'm just going to throw this in there as a question on its own. What does this mean, or what then is it, is one of the keys to crossing the abyss. 
you ask the question, what, what then is it? What does this mean when you get there? If you can do that, every question will be answered. It's very, very much an occult and certainly an alchemical key. Well, there you go. I would never have known that. I would tell no, you, you right no, now. No, you, you wouldn't. But, you know, it's small things like that that, that are interesting to point out to me. Um, mm. You know, that question, standing alone on its own line, it has little relevance whatsoever, let me tell you. If that line wasn't there, if that question wasn't there, what does this mean? Would the text lose anything? Because no, he not. does ask, no. how shall we reconcile? No, it wouldn't, would it? It didn't have to be there at all. And yet he stuck it on a line on its own, where if it was going to be in the text, it actually fits in the paragraph that comes below as one of the several questions that he, that he formulates in the paragraph below, but he doesn't. So these are things that are telling you that he is, he is talking to a different audience than the general public. Well, yeah. I mean, from what you've just explained, now I understand what he's, why he's put it there. Yeah. That's what he's done. And it's, he's, he's doing it all through this chapter. You know, he's done it in certain ways throughout this book, because I've said before, you know, it's quite clear that he's writing to two audiences, you know, reading for two audiences here, um, and that he's explaining that he's had these experiences. But this chapter, it's like, it's out there in spades. Loads and loads and loads of keys of alchemy are coming out in this chapter, some of them relevant to the text. Well, I'm learning something, I'll tell you that. Are you? Uh, because, uh, I, well, I got Neat. loads out of reading it, but, you know, just talking to you about it, I would never have known that, for example. I haven't had that. Ex- well, you haven't read the text that I've read, and you've not been part of the, 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 That's right. the experiences that I've had. That's why. But, you know, it, it's, you, you would see this coming up all the time. What then is it? Or what does this mean? The, they're just variations on the question. You have to ask the question. I'll tell you where else it comes up. It comes up in the allegory stories of the medieval stories of the Round Table, the Arthurian Grail Quest. Okay. Okay, right. Okay, so the, the knights that achieve the Grail, the, you know, the, um, they go to the Grail Castle. And let's say Gawain is in the, in the Grail Castle. Um, in, we're going back beyond medieval there, but Gawain's in the Great Grail Castle. And he's at the table of the king. And at dinner, a procession comes through the hall and it's led by a girl who's holding a tray and on the tray is a severed head and blood and so on. And he could cure the wasteland. The wasteland is our ourselves in the 3D world of illusion. It's an allegory for that. But he could he could repair the wasteland if he asks the grail question and he doesn't. So the wasteland isn't cured by him. And the question we later find out is, what does this mean? Okay. So you're now starting to see. You're right. There's keys. The, these and keys you don't know everywhere. Keys. No, but I do. This is what my life has been. I've been, I've been like in this since my late teens. And I'm not in my late teens now, am I? Well, just, just a smite bit out. But, you know. uh, yeah, smite bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of, you know, and like I said, you know, the, the, the stories that have been belittled and put down as fairy stories, some of the, they've got some of the most direct keys. Red roses and thorns. 
Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, and so on. The prince that comes and rescues with a kiss. And so all of these symbols in these stories, um, they're all there. But, you know, but this is quite clear. What then is it? What does this mean? And you find it in occult texts and alchemical texts, especially everywhere. And particularly the alchemy came down through those medieval stories of Arthur. So read them. Read the 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 Grail stories of Chrétien de Troyes. Read the stories of Mallory. Read, you know the the rendition of Mallory is probably the most accessible. Parts of Al, um, you know, you, you you read those, you know, by Wolfram von Eschenbach, and you'll find all of the keys. And by the way, they are directly telling you every step along the path that you should take to do this safely. And the obstacles that you are likely to encounter and how to defeat them. That's a spin-off podcast if ever I heard one, Pete. Just thought I'd <laughs> let you know. Uh, you know. And that's um, what I find exciting about this chapter is to see all these references that Uspensky just... Because it is, let's face it, most people would read that and they would just gloss over it. You know, what does this mean? And then they'd read the next paragraph. Oh, it's... And they literally would spin that question into the paragraph that follows without understanding that he's put it out there for a reason on its own. But it doesn't even need to be there. The question is redundant in the context of this this part of the paragraph, of, of, the, of the chapter. Completely redundant. So, interesting, eh? It's good, isn't it? I bet you he loved writing this chapter. I bet you he did. I do, you, do you not feel it? I, I think this is Yeah, amazing. I feel it, yeah. I, yeah. He's just, yeah. And I like... I do like the fact that he keeps telling you the sensation of horror and stuff. I think he's he's always licking his lips when he's talking about things like this. <laughs> well, but you know what though? The thing is, you could you could read that and go, oh, he's just being very dramatic. But when yep. you know, as you've explained it, it's actually very uh, accurate as what he's actually it is explaining. Accurate. I you know, it's it's very difficult in this chapter to do what we ought to be doing, which is discussing, discussing the points. It's the sort of thing where it's so dense with things that are important that you feel the need to read loads of it. Don't you? I mean, I mm-hmm. keep having a go about, Oh, we shouldn't read all of this. We should just like just debate the points. It's like there Every sentence has a couple of points, you know. It's like, I know, and if I dare miss one, I'm I'm dragged back. Look at that! <laughs> Look at that! <laughs> well, I, you know, it's only because I I find them incredibly interesting, and oh, for, yeah, for, more, for, for more than one, for, for more than one reason, I I always feel like this. My God, there's more to it. He's 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 actually he's actually shouting from the the parapets of the castle. To those people in the next castle, look, I'm like you. And all the people on the ground underneath don't see the words that he's shouting to the other castle. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm, lo- I'm loving it. I'm loving the fact that you're bringing all this out because, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. It's wonderful. Yeah. But the, and he keeps referring to the mystical literature. And he's basically yeah. telling you, look, if you would actually take the bloody trouble to read some of this stuff and stop 
and stop treating these people as ignorant savages, even though they've got cultures that are far superior to yours now, um, you might actually learn something about how to transform yourself into an over-evolved human being. In other words, the ubermensch of Friedrich Nietzsche. You could actually become an, an evolved soul if you would read it. Everything you need is there in those texts. He comes back to it again, doesn't he? Mystical literature gives us an example of it. The simultaneous sensations of light and darkness, of joy and horror. Normally, we would see those things as separate. How can you be joyful and horrified at the same time? But or see light and dark at the same time. Yeah, but that's the logic of the 3D world. I'll tell you something that's significant, and he mentions it more than once in this chapter. He also puts in good and evil. He does. He does. And I. And the reason that he does it is because you need to understand that your morality is as fake as fuck. There is no good and evil. Oh, but what about the Holocaust? It's only evil from a particular perspective. There is no evil. There just is what there is. Oh, I can't live with that. Well, you're never going to transform and evolve as a soul then. There it is. I'll put it as bluntly as that. You have to understand that duality is duality and it doesn't exist. It is an illusion. You can't pick and choose which dualities are okay and which ones that you'll happily accept. It either is or it fucking isn't. And yeah, I, I don't apologize for swearing because I've had enough of these fuckers that live with this piss awful morality that's got us into the mess that we're in now. This fake shit morality. Spensky's with you. Yeah, I know. And the most binding and restrictive morality of all is the, the British, Victorian and Edwardian morality, which still holds virtually the whole world in sway. Only patches of noble savages live outside of that morality code. Very few, very few people live outside of the British, Victorian and Edwardian morality code. It's a fact. And it is the most binding prison um, in the 3D existence that we are experiencing right now. And it's the cause of all the problems. You cannot pick and choose which dualities that you want to accept and which ones you'll just ignore because they're not real. They're all not real. Yeah. It's as simple as that. So don't give me all this good and evil nonsense don't think that you can still live with your ideas of good and evil i'm talking to listeners here i'm talking to everybody here. you can't you can't have it both ways in this one because there are no both ways there's only one way and that's the whole point and this is where espensky's heading this is his point dualism is is yeah not the way to go and i think well, well let's let's move a little yeah bit yeah well, you, you 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 take you take that. this yeah, take us where you want to take us now. So I've got here that um, in order to to not experience the horror <laughs> yeah. of the new world, it is necessary to know it beforehand, either emotionally, by faith or love, or intellectually by reason. So I think he's he's saying here that well, I, I'm, from what I'm hearing from you, it's still going to be horror, but it, but you're at least prepared for the horror. It'll still That's... be horror. That's the one. Let yeah. me give you a good example of this. Let's say 
you've got to go and have an injection. You know, you've got to have a needle, an injection or a blood test or whatever, whatever they stick a needle in you. If you're afraid of that, one way you can do it is intellectually. You're going to say, I don't like it. It's going to hurt. And I'm frightened of needles, but it's only going to last a few seconds and it'll be gone. So you've intellectually accepted it and then you can get through it and come out the other side. You could also have faith that this is going to do me a world of good. I need this. So it actually isn't pain. It's just an experience of the goodness coming through. You could have faith that this is what I need. You can do it any way you want. So long as you're prepared for it, it's great. What would be horrific is you're in the pub one night with your mates, having a good time and a drink and everything. Some, some stranger rushes up to you and sticks a bloody needle into you. Now, that would be horror. Yes, that would be horror. You're not prepared for it. But if you've got an appointment to go to have a blood test at the doctor's, you prepare yourself for it in, in, in any of the ways that you prepare yourself for it, intellectually, emotionally, mm. spiritually, whatever the way, you know what it's going to be. You're prepared for it and you know it will be over. And when you when it's over, you'll feel better. Okay? Yes. So this is, this is what Ospensky's saying there. When you, when you do this unprepared... It'll come as a bloody shock. Oh, I'm going to try and cross the abyss today. And somehow you, you and somehow you manage to access the abyss. And you've done this unprepared and you come out like a gibbering maniac, if you come out at all. And he's very clear about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. In order to not experience the horror of the new world. I, I would I would tend to say you still experience it, but you don't experience it unprepared, like That's you're it. saying. Hmm. The needle will still sting. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 you will know, and you know that you're going to come out the other side, and things, and that after it, things will be better somehow. That's better. right. So it's like it's just one of those um, transitions through. Yeah. Um, okay. And in um, and in order to not experience the horror from the loss of the old world, it is necessary to have renounced it voluntarily and that is in italics, either through faith or reason. So that, that I, I think, is packed with um, meaning as well. That, uh, it, it is, and I think it's worth actually explaining this, that a lot of people, and particularly religious people, throughout the ages, particularly from the medieval age onwards, think that this idea means you renounce all worldly possessions. Not so. All you're having to renounce is your belief and absolute faith in the reality of the 3D world. You voluntarily say, do you know what? I actually know this is rubbish. I don't accept any of it. And I'm not going to live my, let my life and my life experience be defined by it. I'm going to have a 3D experience while at the same time laughing at everything that happens uh, that I do experience because it's funny. I just had my arm chopped off by a sh by a chainsaw. Bloody elf! That's hilarious because it's 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 not permanent and it's not real. You you have to. I mean, I, I've given an extreme example, but the fact of it is that you you're renouncing that voluntarily, that belief in in the fact that anything that happens here matters. It's not. Now, he does say through faith or reason. So I think that's of interest to me because, you know, just using your example of your arm being chopped off, well, I would find that hard to say that really didn't happen. <laughs> In the 3D experience, I would Nobody find that hard. 
nobody says it doesn't happen, Al. It, it's just that it doesn't matter because it's ah, not real. Okay. So, so it's either by faith or reason. So I think what he's saying there is, you know, however you can manage it, if you can you voluntarily do it, if, if you just have to take a leap of faith or you know it's, it sounds reasonable, it doesn't matter, even if it doesn't sound, if it even sounds absurd, just take some faith. Well, well reason is the hardest way to do it. Reason is much harder than faith. I'll tell you why. Mm. Reason, for example, is the idea of applying 3D logic and understanding that there's a place where it ends. That's not the same as having faith in heaven or nirvana or whatever you want to call it, the Elysian fields. Yeah, it's I not the same. Saying. Reason is an intellectual process. The intellect, more often than not, is a barrier keeping you from the unconscious mind, the subconscious, the unconscious mind. I prefer unconscious mind. Um, it is. But you can use it to get there. You can sit there in your chair on your own and keep telling yourself there is something beyond this 3D world because we know that things are leading us to it, but we don't have the tools yet to define it. I would like to experience it and maybe I will find the tools or bring the tools back with me or whatever. So you're using reason. And if you do it hard enough and long enough, you will get into the kind of trance state that will take you, allow you to, to get there. But faith is much easier. You go in there saying, don't know what it's going to be like. I've been told it's like the abyss and everything, but I want to go because I know that on the other side, is my evolution. I will evolve into something greater than I am. In fact, I will actually see my own potential and realize my own potential and be my own potential. So faith is a far better, a better motivator, but you can use all of them. You can get there, provided that you know, like you can read a book, you can read a book like this that tells you that when you get to the abyss, it's going to be bloody horrible. You can have this moment of horror. Mm -hmm. Provided that you accept that that's going to happen and you still take the path anyway, you will get there. And that's what he's saying. And that's what I think he's doing with reason. He's saying he's a book full of a reasonable explanation of the unknown. So you could probably say, well, yeah, it, that makes sense that there is something other than what we're seeing. He's, he's given us the foundations to defunct what, we're, what we yeah. see as reality. So that, that's one way of having reason to voluntarily yeah. denounce it, I guess. Well, reading the book is, that's, yeah, the reading the book is reason, isn't it? It's the reason way. The, yeah. bit, the bit that comes next is, is good. Yeah, the next bit is good. One must renounce all the beautiful, bright world in which we are living. One must admit that it is a ghostly, phantasmal, unreal, deceitful, illusionary Mayavik. And Mayavik is in italics, and I don't know what that word means. Well, you never looked it up. I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm going to do it now. Go on then, I'll let you do that. Teaching about God and the world based on mystical insight. Mm -hmm. okay. And it's in italics in my book. Yeah, it's in mine as well. So that's why I was saying it needed to be important and I didn't look it up. Teaching about God and the world based on mystical insight. So we must renounce all the beautiful bright world in which we are living and we admit that it is actually ghostly, phantasmal, unreal, deceitful, illusory and maybe or Mayavik, whichever pronunciation you prefer. But the fact of it is that, yes, we are now in the mystical world created by God. It's a phantasm, Not by illusion, science. a deceit, yes. And certainly can't be measured by science truthfully. 
So we've got to admit that, we've got to renounce that, those the world, and admit the the illusion of it, the phantasmal nature of it, the myavic nature of it, and then re reconcile yourself to this unreality, not be afraid of it, but rejoice it at it. Now do understand that little that last little bit. One must reconcile oneself to this unreality, not be afraid of it, but rejoice at it. Well, I imagine it's like your uh, analogy about uh, getting the needle. If you look at it and say, this is going to be wonderful for me if I if I get through this. Um, so I should be looking forward to the, to the benefits of a, a new understanding rather than being afraid of feeling the horror. Of the Losing unknown. the whole, yeah, yeah. Because here's the bit that I doubt that many people get. One must give up everything. One must become poor in spirit. In other words, make oneself poor, in italics, by the effort of one's spirit. Now, everybody, and certainly from medieval ages onwards, people think that's renouncing um, possessions. Yeah, that does, does sound and like that, doesn't it? that's not what it means, and he explains it wonderfully. The most profound philosophical truth is expressed in the beautiful evangelical symbol, and he calls this a symbol, and it is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll find that in Saint, the Gospel according to Matthew. It's the, one of the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, in case anybody wonders about this sort of thing. So that's a Christian symbol. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Uspensky says, poor in spirit does not mean poor materially. It means you don't have to give up your possessions. <laughs> in the third, yeah, you know, in the worldly meaning of the world, and still less does it mean poverty of spirit. Okay. okay. Spiritual poverty is the renouncement of matter. Such poverty is his when a man has no earth under his feet and no sky above his head. In other words, before we come on to the, the next little quote, let's explain that. So, poverty of spirit is the renouncement of matter. In other words, when, when you renounce the experience that you're having in the 3D world, you still have to acknowledge that 3D exists, even if it's an illusion and not the reality, the single reality that you once thought it was. Okay. So such so, poverty is his when a man has no earth under his feet and no sky above his head. So when he says no earth under his feet and no sky above his head, he's, he's talking figuratively in the sense that you just, you have no anchor. That's it. And then he goes and says, which is another lovely Christian one, Foxes have no holes and birds of the air have nests. The foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. Who's the son of man? Well, I've heard the, the term son of God. But I haven't no, heard no, 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 son of man, son of man. You've never heard the term son of man. And you're, you're Catholic, you're, you're Irish, aren't you? No. Well, son of man is Jesus. Now, the son of man has meaning, and it has meaning, and it is, it is used completely i can't believe that's why i'm that's why i'm struggling can't believe you've never come across the term you don't have to have read the scriptures it's it's like out there in the world the son of man if you've ever if you've if you've watched movies hollywood movies like you know the robe or the greatest story ever told and all these epics you'd have heard it ben hur i've heard son of god as jesus i have not heard son of man 
Yes. Yes. Man is, is right up there. It, and it's a more important phrase. And it's a more important phrase, much more important, um, because it's not the same. The Son of Man is referring is the re reference to the Adam Kadmon, which I mean we are not going to go into all of this Kabbalistic stuff here, um, but there are references to the Adam Kadmon in here as as well as the Son of God. You see, Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God, and they're not the same thing. It's another great great quote that he's put in but he's put it in not for that i don't think but it's this it's this explanation of poverty of spirit so i do not understand what it means by but the son of man hath nowhere to lay his head yeah well the point the point is that the son of man is the evolved soul mm, i understand now yeah so okay. jesus being one of those people yeah um, an evolved soul <laughs> Yeah, an evolved soul. Yes, exactly right. The reason that he has no place is because he understands that the place, you know, the foxhole or the bird's nest, is an illusion. And he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. It doesn't mean he can't... It doesn't mean that in the 3D world he can't go and own one, but he doesn't need it. He he or he is in a position where it could be here today, it could be gone tomorrow. It doesn't really matter because I... I can have an experience of the 3D world, and it's like I said right at the beginning of these podcasts, I can have a, a 3D experience in the knowledge that I'm in a theme park choosing which rides to go on. Nothing happens yeah. to me. I'm not a victim. I choose for it to happen. And there's the difference. Mm -hmm. You have a 3D experience as, a, as an extra-dimensional being that we all actually are. In other words we get to revel in the experience. We are the ultimate alchemists. We can raise the dead. We can make water into wine. We can create gold out of nothing. We don't need anything. And there are stories that say these things have happened. Uh, and loads and loads. Well, his story for yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly right. That's that's great. So this is the poverty of man who is entirely entirely alone because father, mother, other men, even the nearest here on earth, he regards as phantoms, illusions, and renounces them because beyond these phantoms he discerns the true substances that he is striving towards. He's used different wording in mine, but I don't think it really makes any difference. I think what he says there is quite clear yeah i do i think it's quite clear i don't think he needed to change that paragraph in mine which mm. he has but it still says the same thing he does have one last bit says renouncing the phenomenal illusions of the world he's approaching the truly real yeah now that is the last part that is the last part of my paragraph as well it's it's just that he changed the, the wording before he's put even the nearest here on earth he begins to regard differently He's put here on earth in italics. Yes. He wants us to understand that when he says here on earth, he means in the 3D experience. And he's also italicized entirely alone. Yeah, the poverty of a man who is entirely alone. Well, you are, aren't you? Let me tell you about entirely alone. If we think of that, of us being individuals and the rest of existence being not us, that's one aspect of being entirely alone. And there's the horror right? Yeah. But also, entirely alone is all of existence as one whole, an infinite whole. You're entirely alone because there's nothing else. 
And so there's two ways of being entirely alone. There's the horrible way, or there is the joyful, ecstatic way. Yeah, and Aspensky does clarify this a little further on. He makes he does, it very clear. And he also makes it very clear that he can't make it clear because <laughs> I, I would have to use language, and the language can't do it. So, for example, I could, I, it's easy for me to say the horror comes with loneliness or isolation when you see yourself as separate from everything else. And so you have this realization that little you is there in the void, is, is there in the void of, of infinity. And you're just on your own in infinity. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? I can't explain what it's like for you to be part of the whole of infinity because I'm using the word part. Yes. Which, which implies that I'm a separate little bit. You know, the language fucks us over. And he, Spensky, and he's not the only one, by the way, as he is quite clear to point out, all throughout the ages, people who've been trying to express what he's expressing here have had the same barrier. You can't do it because the language, the language contains no way of doing it. We, we, the language is based on duality. All human language is based on duality. By the way, all. Is based on duality. There's, there isn't there isn't a linguistic system that isn't. So, you know, even even people who spend most of their lives, or at least half of their lives, in and out of the three D world and the re, and the reality, i.e., your people, your first people, Australian natives, and they do no no people on earth spend more time in the what they call the well what we we've, we've interpreted as them saying the dream time. Yeah. Nobody, no other culture on earth spends as much time in it as they as a, as a people uh, and yet they even their language which is very obscure for us um, they have to speak to themselves in a duality it's in, it's it's very very difficult best book I've I've read on that subject actually is something called voices from the first day if you can get hold of it it's brilliant absolutely that that is mind expanding and it's all about the the cultural life of Australian first people. It's just amazing. Oh my God, it's amazing. So anyway, moving on. So Pete, I'm just going to go up to this uh, line, so this next paragraph and then call it a day. So yeah, I know. I, I, I've, I've actually written in my book, stop here, that line. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we're on the same wavelength or line length. <laughs> so, literally on the same page. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very nearly a joke. <laughs> so, Svensky continues, the moment of transition, that terrible moment of loss of the old and the unfoldment of the new, and he's got loss of the old and unfoldment of the new in italics, yeah. has been represented in innumerable allegories in ancient literature. To make this transition easy was the purpose of the mysteries. Um, in India... Egypt, in Greece, special preparatory rituals existed, sometimes merely symbolical, sometimes real, which actually brought a soul to the very portals of the new world and opened these portals at the moment of initiation. Well, actually, yeah, that's the, that is exactly how it works. And this is why it's important. You know, you find um, people that have been here before that have had the experience. And like I say, if you find them easily, they're not real. Quite quite simple. Um, find them easily. They're not real. So, 
especially in this day and age, it, it, that didn't used to be the case. In ancient Greece, you would know, you could go to any of the, you know, you could go to the Eleusinian mysteries, you could find a temple and you could, you could volunteer to give your life over to the mysteries of Eleusis or, or whichever it was, whichever, whichever portal to the mysteries you chose, you could go, you could go to Delphi and so on. Um, loads of places. Same in Egypt. Now, of course, in a society that's strictly hierarchical, it would all depend upon the look of your birth, whether you were going to have the luxury of being able to volunteer for this, you know, to, to take part in the mysteries, or whether you had you had a peasant life ahead of you where you would never move yourself from the, the drudgery of work. Um, but nevertheless, they were open and available. They weren't hidden. They They only became hidden at the advent of the great monotheistic cultures, so the 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 advance of Christianity dragging Judaism with it that already existed, and then obviously Islam followed it in the West, that became the big thing, and the mysteries had to be hidden. The empire of the British in particular allowed access to the great mysteries of the East, which we find difficult. We do. The, myst the mystery gates and the pathways of the West, including Egypt, by the way, um, that's considered to be Western, They're, that is the basis of Western ceremonial magic, at the more modern ceremonial magic, and all the mysteries of Rome, you know, the, the Mithras cults um, and things like this, they were all accessible. They were absolutely accessible. You could see them and... Yes, you'd have to you'd have to prove your worth to to be able to join, but you know it wasn't hidden, and everybody knew what the purpose of it was. There were secrets, of course, um, that you wouldn't be told until you were initiated, and then oaths with pains of death. Sounds like Freemasons, doesn't it? Ooh, I wonder why. Nothing Egyptian about the Freemasons, is there? Hmm, hmm, not much. Um, and and various other orders too. But there, there you go. Um, you could do this, you could do that, but the really important point is that it can only take you so far. You, at that point, have to choose to cross the abyss, open the portal, have the experience. But you will be so prepared and so safe at the point that, yes, you will experience the horror, but your preparation will be such that it's only the horror of I've got to have an injection and I know it will be over in a bit and I'm going to be different at the end of it with great benefits and not the, oh, I'm going to come out of this a madman. That's that's what a, a, the great mystery traditions will do. There are Christian mystery um, orders as well. Don't think there aren't. You'll, you'll struggle to find those though. I think the nearest the nearest you'll get is monastic orders, uh, you know, probably in in Catholicism the Carthusian order. I'm not a Catholic, by the way, but uh, it's it's you know I've read a lot and I know a lot, mm. and I, I think probably Carthus the Carthusian order would be pretty close to do this, um, you know, where you spend most of your day locked in a cell in solitary. It's great preparation for what's coming. Well. Spinsky does, though, drop this little bomb. But no mm -hmm. outward rituals and ceremonies could take the place of self-initiation. The great work must have been going on inside, in italics, the soul and mind of man. Yep. In other words, 
you got to do this yourself. This is it. Okay, and since we're going to stop here for this particular recording, I'll just throw in the other little one, the phrase uh, that starts this, this last sentence, the great work. Not come across that before? I've heard the term, but I must say, yet again, I am ignorant of its true meaning. The transformational process of alchemy from start to finish. Tarot cards, the major arcana, card zero to card 21. Although zero doesn't have to be the beginning, zero can actually come anywhere because it's not actually a number. Mathematically speaking, since Uspensky is a mathematician, I thought I'd just throw that one in there. <laughs> okay. But yeah, the, the great work, the great work always describes alchemy. So he's, he's put, again, he didn't have to call it the great work. It's a very no, precise phrase. And there it is, another signal to the, to the knowledgeable that this is what we're talking about. We're talking about alchemy. Don't worry, I'm on your page. I'm doing this with you. Alchemy being the transformation as well. Isn't alchemy it? is transformational. That's all alchemy is, transformational. Well, Pete, Spensky's drawn a line here in the chapter, so I think that's a really logical place for us to to stop at this point before we continue with the chapter. It just gets better and better. I'm just And I'm loving the, the things that you're pointing out that uh, I would just have glossed over. Um, and uh, the fact that this chapter is really telling us so much uh, packed into so few pages. It's, it's awesome. Uh, yeah, thank you for, for joining me in the discussion. Oh, my pleasure. But when you say that this is a logical place to stop, is that three-dimensional positivistic logic or is that the new logic? Well, I'm in two minds. So is that dualistic? I'm not sure. That's, dual that's dualistic. <laughs> Anyway, oh, boom, boom. We're, we're, <laughs> honestly, we're, we're, we're just such talented entertainers. Um, the, I am enjoying this. Um, looking forward to, to taking this to, towards the end of this chapter now. But because, um, you know, obviously I know what's coming and it's it, there's even more of that in it. And so, yeah, I I'm really enjoying the fact that we're able to to make something of this uh, and to actually explain little bits that perhaps people wouldn't have otherwise seen. And, and I'm enjoying it immensely. Thank you. And thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening.